Hello, my name is Lee Shellnut, and I'm the pastor of the Huntersville Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church. That's a mouthful, so we affectionately know of ourselves as HARP. We at HARP welcome you to the podcast of our preaching and teaching ministry. We're grateful that you've joined us. If you're encouraged by what you hear, we'd love to have you subscribe. We believe in the power of God's Word, and we love sharing the glorious good news of the Lord Jesus Christ as we preach and teach through the pages of Holy Scripture. So join us now as we open up God's Word. This is the invitation. Amen. You may be seated. As you're taking your seats, you can look in your bulletins this time. The text is there for our message, or you can look in your Bibles. We turn to John chapter 14 today on this Trinity Sunday. And as we do so, we're turning to one of the most beloved chapters in all the Bible. If you were to ask uh, fellow Christians, what's, what's your favorite chapter in the Bible? Not your favorite verse, but your favorite chapter, your favorite passage, your favorite full chapter. You'd hear responses like, uh, well, Psalm 23, right? Uh, some might say Romans chapter 8. Others would say 1 Corinthians 13. Well, John 14 typically lands in one of the top five positions of such surveys. And as we read it, I think you'll understand why. It's a beautiful text to look at on this Trinity Sunday. It's a, it's a chapter in uh, the fuller teaching of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's known as the Upper Room Discourse. It's that teaching that He gave His disciples on the night in which He was betrayed before He goes out into the Garden of Gethsemane. So it's, it's His last really message and teaching opportunity with his, his disciples. It's a chapter that assumes the doctrine of the Trinity. It's Jesus, God the Son, speaking and teaching. He's talking about the Father. And He's also talking about the gift of the Holy Spirit. So the whole chapter assumes that our God is three persons in one God. Three in one and one in three. It's also a passage that has so many really, really famous little vignettes. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. It's an amazing chapter. And there's so much here. We can't look at all of it, but we're going to focus particularly on one verse. But we'll see how that one verse is connected to the entire chapter. So give your attention now to the reading of God's most holy and uh, His most powerful, His inspired, His infallible, and His inerrant word. Jesus says, let not your hearts be troubled. If you go back in the chapter before, you'll recognize, and if you go ahead into the Garden of Gethsemane, you'll recognize Jesus' heart's troubled. His heart is troubled because He knows what He's about to face. He is about to go to the cross. He is about to be betrayed. He's about to drink the cup of God's wrath. His heart is troubled, but notice what He says to His disciples. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. Now always when I get to these passages, whether I'm reading this in a funeral or whether I'm preaching at 9 o'clock or 11 o'clock, I say, I love the King James. Right? Uh, in, uh, what does the King James say? Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. 
well, that's not the best of translations. Rooms is okay. Let's make a compromise. How about this? There are many royal suites. Okay? In my father's house are many royal suites. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also, and you know the way where I'm going. But Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. But Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it's enough for us. And Jesus said to him, and you can hear the exasperation in his words, Have I been with you so long, and you still don't know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father's in me? The words that I say to you, I don't speak on my own authority, but that the Father who dwells in me does His works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father's in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works then these will he do, because I'm going to the Father. And whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I'll do it. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper another comforter, another advocate. He's the first one. I will ask the Father and He will give you another advocate to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees Him nor knows Him. You know Him, for He dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. In a little while, the world will see me no more, but you'll see me. Because I live, you also will live. In that day, you will know that I am in, the Father, in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not the world? Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. And the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father who sent me. These things I've spoken to you while I am still with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. 
You heard me say to you, I'm going away and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I'm going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it takes place, so that when it does take place, you may believe. I will no longer talk with you, for the ruler of this world is coming, but he has no claim on me. But I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise, let us go up from here. The Spirit has come. The Word of God for the people of God. Thanks be unto God. Um, as, you, as you know, and if you don't know already, I just have been on a trip, a missions trip, an assessment trip to see if World Witness, our mission agency, can come alongside of Christians in the country of Rwanda. And that's, we would typically say Rwanda, but it's Rwanda. If we can go there and assist them in training their pastors. It's an amazing opportunity before us. Their government has instituted a requirement that all their pastors receive a certification and that they receive or be in a certification program within the year 2023. And if their pastors are not, and if they don't have that certificate, then their churches will be shut down. And to give you an idea of the monumental task, one district out of this nation has around 440 churches. Of those 440 churches, if they were to enact this, this requirement right now today, only 40 ministers would still be able to serve in churches. All the rest would be shut down. It's a monumental task before us. It's great work. Uh, and it's a work that only God can do. So again, as I said earlier, be in prayer uh, for world witness as we examine this further to see if this is something that the Lord could enable us to be a part of. Uh, so I've been on the trip. I've been on the trip a little over a week, about 10 days or so. And, and I'm under no pretense that in just a few days that I have become an expert on the country of Rwanda. Far from it. Just going there and spending a few days there makes me realize how much I don't know about this little small nation, about the size of South Carolina. Uh, nevertheless, spending a few days there really did make me more aware of something that I knew about that happened years ago. Uh, it, it was a particular um, scary, it was a particularly sad, it was an awful news story, but it was a fleeting, at least for me, it was a passing news story. A terrible one, yes, but one that soon passed off of my radar. The story was from 1994. Many of you weren't even born then. But back in 1994, a horrific thing occurred in the country of Rwanda. Much had transpired leading up to those 100 days of terror. Much had transpired in the decades before 1994. There was colonial favoritism. There were, there were tribal racial um, tensions. There had been officially sanctioned dehumanizing propaganda broadcast through a government-run radio station for years. There had been European meddling. There had been political and economic disparities between people, groups. And there had even been genocidal trial runs. Little attempts to see how it might work. 
And then came, on one evening, the mysterious downing of an airplane. And that airplane carried on it the president of Rwanda and the president of the little nation below it called Burundi. Somebody shot that plane down, or at least supposedly did. And that was the light, that was the match that lit the fire. As soon as that happened, within hours, there were squads of young French-trained death squads of Hutus wielding machetes with genocidal furor. And they unleashed in a span of 100 days a brutal genocide. They brutally murdered thousands. Or they brutally tortured and then murdered thousands. They tortured and murdered 800,000 to 100 million fellow citizens. Basically at that time, one-tenth of the population. 800,000 to 1 million fellow countrymen, Tutsis and moderate Hutus, bodies strewn across the natural beauty of this central country in East Africa. Now the days before, I want you to think about, the days before that 100-day reign of terror began, You had Hutu children and Tutsi children playing in the streets in their neighborhood together. You had Hutu and Tutsi neighbors chatting with one another. You had Hutu and Tutsi sitting in the same churches together, singing praises together. And then... All of a sudden, former neighbors, former friends, are brutal enemies. Imagine being a Tutsi at that time. All of a sudden, these squads of young men with machetes come rushing in. And you run. And you knock on your neighbor's door. Your neighbor is a Hutu. And they lock the door. They don't let you in. You go to a church... And you ask for refuge, and you might be able to go in. And then the priest or the Presbyterian minister might stand outside and say they're in there. Some neighbors would even pick up the machetes themselves. I watched the films. I read the displays in the Genocide Museum in Kigali. I walked quietly beside the mass graves. And I'm grateful I wept. I wept at man's sinful inhumanity to man. I was glad that I saw, even before I left, groups of young people with t-shirts, matching t-shirts. They were all part of a program, a national program, a governmental program called Never Again. Never Again. All the students go there to see what's, what, what it was all about. I'm grateful for the amazing efforts of the government of Rwanda. It's an amazing government. It's a government that recognizes this dark chapter in its life and it's seeking to bring truth and reconciliation to this nation. I'm amazed by that. 
And yet the after effects of that genocide are still very tangible. Yes, you see men and women on crutches without a leg or an arm. And I was told before I went, I was told, Lee, now recognize, when you see somebody that's basically 25, 26, 27 or older, know this, they survived the genocide. They lived through it. Untold Hutus, number of Hutus, live with their guilt. Untold Tutsis, live with their losses and their grief. And sometimes, brothers and sisters, they're sitting on the same pew in their churches today. We had the wonderful opportunity one evening to meet with the famous bishop of the Anglican Church there. His name is Bishop John. I can't pronounce his last name. I won't even try. But he was a dear godly man. And he said, I'm so grateful that we're witnesses thinking about this opportunity to come and help us train our pastors. They need it. You need to come. We need your help. But when you come and when you train your pastors, recognize that the pastors that they are going to be training are pastoring in churches where they have Hutu sitting beside Tutsi in the pews. The Hutus with their guilt and the Tutsis with their grief. Can you imagine living in such a place? Gloriously beautiful. Land of a thousand hills. Those hills were bloodstained. Among all the horrors of that genocide, one was the making of thousands of orphans. Imagine the squads of young men, the Hutus, who are mad at the Tutsis, who've been worked up into this fervor, who've been told all their lives that the Tutsis are cockroaches. Imagine them rushing into your neighborhood. You're a mother or father, what do you do? You tell your son, you tell your daughter, run, flee. And your child takes off. One child doesn't make it. One child does. And the one child that does no longer has a mother or a father or a brother or a sister They aren't an orphan. Imagine such orphans, brothers and sisters. Really do. Don't just put it aside and say, yeah, I know about this thing called orphan. Think about it right now. Think about their plight. Think about their condition. Think about their questions. What will I do now? Where do I go? What happens next? Who will love? Who will nurture? Who will guide me? Who stands on my side? Who can I trust? What will become of me? Those are the questions of orphans. Whether it's, whether it's Tutsi orphans or orphans in China or orphans in the United States, those are the questions of orphans. This is the plight of orphans. Orphans have to take care of themselves. Orphans can't They don't have the luxury of being weak. They've got to be tough. They've got to be strong. They must protect themselves from being taken advantage of. They cannot depend on anyone. Orphans crave to be taken in and loved, but they doubt that they ever will. Orphans want to be accepted. They want to belong, but they can't trust other people. Orphans only trust themselves. 
Orphans can't get too close. They can't get too emotionally close because you don't know what's going to happen. You've been abandoned once, you may be abandoned again. Orphans are on the outside looking in. That's the plight of orphans. Now then, is it any wonder that our Lord, our glorious God, calls His people to care for orphans? He does so from the book of the the law, the, the law of Moses, the book of Deuteronomy. He does so all the way up to the prophets, to the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah pens these words, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. From the book of Deuteronomy to the prophet Isaiah to the New Testament author James, what does James tell us? Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit widows and orphans in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. From Deuteronomy to James, God tells us of His concern for orphans. And God calls us to protect and to minister to orphans. Dear ones, I'm convinced it is a non-negotiable for Christian piety. A non-negotiable. And yet, how often do we ignore the questions of orphans? How often do we ignore the plight of orphans? How often do we ignore orphans? And I wonder about that. With so much in the Scriptures about orphans, I wonder how we could ignore them like we do. Why is it so often the case? Well, maybe it's the case because we're just blessed because we live in America and we live in a place where we just don't see that many. Out of sight, out of mind. Whereas if we were living in Rhonda, we'd have them all around us. Walking in the streets or the little ruts and alleyways of Nabahu. I just walk as a white man and all these little children come running out. Masugu, Masugu, Whitey, Whitey. And they just follow me with bloated stomachs and ragged clothes. They're not the ones who are in school because they're not sponsored and many of them are orphans. Is it because we just don't see them? Is it because we're just not, to be honest, we're just not comfortable with the vulnerability and the feelings of abandonment that are their lives? I'm just not comfortable talking about that. Or is it that maybe deep down in every single one of us, we have the fear of being an orphan? I don't know the answer. But let me ask you, when I read to you the words of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ just a few seconds ago, how did it make you feel? 
How, does, how will these words make you feel right here, right now? Hear them one more time. I will ask the Father and He will give you another Helper to be with you forever. He, even the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees Him nor knows Him. You know Him, for He dwells with you and will be with you. Now here's, here are the words I want you to hear one more time. How do they make you feel? I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will not leave you as orphans. I will not leave you as orphans. One pastor wisely noted, at some point we all want or even need to hear these words. They speak directly to some of our greatest fears and challenges, abandonment and isolation, loneliness and vulnerability. They remind us that we are not destined to walk this earth without an identity or direction. We do not stand alone. He goes on to say, to be sure, there there are seasons of life, there are moments of life when the transitions and the changes and the tragedies can leave us feeling as orphans. Not literally, but can leave us feeling as if we've been abandoned. And we're totally vulnerable. And if 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 we're going to survive, we've got to do it all by our own strength. And when those moments come, when they happen, we too can have orphan questions. Whether we verbalize them or not, the questions begin. What will I do now? Where do I go? What happens next? Who will love? Who will nurture? Who will guide me? Who stands at my side? Who can I trust? What will become of me? When you come to this text of John chapter 14, ask yourself, are these the sort of questions that the disciples were having in their hearts and their minds? Their feet had been washed, remember. They had had the supper they had celebrated. The betrayer Judas, he's gone. He's left. He's gone to do his dirty work. And now, Jesus is teaching them. And what's He telling them? I'm about to leave you. I'm about to go. I'm leaving. Can you imagine their thoughts? They had been with him for three years, night and day. The one that they loved. And now he's saying, I'm going. I'm leaving you. Puts a different spin on some of the questions that you hear in this chapter. What does Thomas say? Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? Philip asked, Or said, Lord, show us the Father. And it's enough for us. Those brothers and sisters are the questions and the appeals of orphans. They sound like orphans. Let me bring it closer to home. Have you ever loved and then lost someone? You won't hear their voice again. This side of glory. What will I do now? Where do I go? What happens next? Who will love? Who will nurture? Who will guide me? 
Who stands at my side? Who can I trust? What will become of me? We fear becoming what? We fear becoming orphans. That same minister went on to say, that fear points to the deeper reality that by ourselves we're not enough. We were never intended or created to be self-sufficient. Americans, please hear that. We were never intended to stand alone as individuals. We were created to love and be loved, to live in relationship as persons giving themselves to each other, to dwell, abide, and remain within each other even as the Father is in Jesus and Jesus is in the Father. And that, brothers and sisters, is the antithesis of being an orphan. What did Jesus say to those disciples in addition to saying, I'm about to leave and go to my Father? What did He say to them? I will not leave you orphaned. That's His promise. To not be orphaned means that you're not alone. He doesn't leave you alone. What does He do? What does Jesus do? He pours out and He gives to you His what? Spirit. The other advocate to be with you. Not just someone who's going to wipe your tear at the end of the battle, but someone who's going to be alongside of you through the battle. To not be orphaned means that you're not alone. To not be orphaned means that you're, you're not abandoned. Yes, Jesus has gone away, but what has He promised? What does He say? Repeatedly. I'll come again. I'll come back. I will come. To not be orphaned means that you're not alone. To not be orphaned means that you're not abandoned. To not be orphaned means you have a family. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, and all those who by God's grace look to Jesus as Lord and Savior. You've got a family. To not be orphaned, brothers and sisters, means that you also have a home. What did Jesus say to His disciples at the very beginning of the chapter? In my Father's house are many royal suites. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. You're not alone. You're not abandoned. You've got a family and you've got a home. And to not be orphaned also means that you'll live as a child, a loved child. And what does that mean? Jesus tells us, doesn't He? What does He say? Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in Me. What do children do? They believe their loved ones, right? Right? Until they've been burned. Jesus will never burn you. Believe Him. Children, believe. Children also, they obey. Because they love. They love the family. They love the father. They love their big brother. 
What does Jesus say? If anyone loves me, he will do what? He'll keep my word. All of it. All of it. Not just what's convenient, not what's just socially convenient, not what just makes you um, approved by the world, but you obey that which makes you look incredibly idiotic. Children believe, children obey, and they also do one other thing. They don't fear. Let not your hearts be troubled. Neither let them be afraid. A child believes. A child obeys. And a child doesn't fear because their father loves them. Because their older brother loves them. Because the Spirit loves them. They don't, they're not afraid. I remember dear Jamie Hunt, retired pastor from Cottle Creek. Jamie, I, I knew his practice. Every time the children would gather to go on a retreat to Bon Clarkin in the spring or in the fall, Jamie would meet them in the parking lot. You know what you do. You get there, everybody comes, you load up the van. Jamie would be there. And he'd say the same thing every time. This is what he would say to those children. Remember whose you are. Remember whose you are. So child of God, remember whose you are. Remember where you're going. Remember how you're called to live. And remember that Jesus has promised the following. I will not leave you as orphans. Regardless of the circumstances of your life, brothers and sisters, regardless of the storms, regardless even of, of death itself, if you, by grace, are trusting in Jesus as Lord and Savior, you will never, never, never be an orphan. You're the beloved child of God. And you have Jesus' word on it. And dear ones, He don't lie. Amen. Let's pray. Oh Lord our God, Heavenly Father, thank You for the privilege of calling You Father Thank you that we're not slaves, we're not orphans, we are your children. And we are your children through the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we have his promise, and we're claiming it, you'll never leave us as orphans, and he will come again. So we ask, O oh Father, hold us fast. And send your Son again. For it's in His name we pray. Amen.